we are in the middle of a series. This is part three of a series called Mayhem. That's what this design and everything is intended to, to demonstrate or represent, which is the, the tangled webs we weave, the messes we get ourselves in, or we find ourselves in, right, the chaos of life. And we find ourselves in chaotic seasons of life for different reasons. Not all chaos is created equal. Sometimes you're the victim of someone else's chaos. Sometimes you're caught in the crossfire of someone else's bad choices. But other times, I think more often than we care to admit, we bring it on ourselves, right? Some of us, uh, almost in a, in a patterned, almost semi-addictive kind of a way, we tend to find ourselves in chaotic situations or seasons that we bring on ourselves with our own choices. We choose chaos over order. We choose something that doesn't make sense over something that does. We do it all the time. But however you end up in the season of chaos that you're in now, or if you're not in one, one's coming. Trust me, just wait. <laughs> however you end up there, I think it's important more than anything else today, it's important to know that if you are a believer in God, the God of the Bible, then you are persuaded to believe that God, his intention and his will, his desire is to bring order into our chaotic existence. From the very beginning, that's been God's desire to introduce order into our chaos. And we see this in our everyday lives, but, but even more than that, we're starting to see this in the universe and how chaos and order work together in the universe. This is some crazy stuff that we're learning about the universe, specifically the origins of the universe, the Big Bang for example, and what physicists are learning now is, is really uh, contradicting some of the stuff we thought we knew. See, we, we used to think that order was the natural state of the universe and chaos was the unnatural force threatening order. What we found out in more recent studies, however, is that chaos is the natural state of the universe and order is unnatural. And we know this because they've studied the origin of the universe all the way back to the millisecond following the Big Bang. And in the milliseconds following that original explosion, for a fraction of a moment, the universe was in total chaos. The original natural state of the universe, total disarray. Where there was, did I say something to make Siri talk back? <laughs> did I say, hey, Siri? Something <laughs> happened over there. Chaos, man. <laughs> the, the idea is, is that, that, that from the very beginning there was just chaos and nothing else. Like in an, in an unimaginable way, like total chaos is something we can't imagine. It's not, like, it's not like you dropped out of school and lost your job and your brother-in-law is a jerk. Or, like that's not what I'm saying. Like not our chaos. Total chaos where there's no up and down. There's no left or right. You know, there's just, there's no laws. The laws of physics hadn't really stuck yet. There was nothing static about the universe. Everything was dynamic. Everything was chaotic. Two of the three spatial dimensions were expanding rapidly. One of the three spatial dimensions was contracting rapidly. Wrap your head around that, man. There was just no sense to be made. So there were no models that could have been made at that time by computers or human minds. Given those circumstances, no one could have ever projected the outcome that we have today. It would have been scientifically impossible to project the outcome that we have today, life on this terrestrial ball that we're spinning on, given the, the data in the first milliseconds following the Big Bang. You follow me? So this is where it gets weird. 
the question then becomes not to, I'm going to reduce this down a little bit too much, but, but this is where it gets weird. Because the question then is if the world, if the universe was total chaos and that was the natural state of things, then where did order come from? If in the first milliseconds of the universe's existence it was sheer mayhem and that's the natural state of things, then where did this unnatural force of order come from? And, of course, everybody's trying to find explanations that don't point to God, and I'm totally about that. I'm totally fine with finding the right explanations, and I'm not one of the God of the gaps guys where there's not an answer. It must be God, you know. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it does seem as though there was some outside force, outside intelligence or being that introduced this, this unnatural force of order into the total chaos of the universe. Because it didn't take long for chaos to give way to order and for order to give way to life and for life to give way to intelligence to us. That's why we're here. Sheer chaos on its own does not produce what we know to be true about our existence today. So these are the questions that keep physicists up at night. And this, frankly, if you don't know my story, like I was a skeptic who used to make fun of people who said what I'm about to say now, <laughs> but this is kind of where the Bible enters in and blows my mind sometimes, especially Genesis, written over 3,000 years ago, more or less, before anybody knew what a uh, cell was or before anybody knew how gravity works. Genesis said creation happened this way, in the beginning. This is Genesis 1 and then 1, 2 through 4. Everything was formless. Think about that. Is that not a definition of chaos? Like, everything was formless and empty. How can everything be empty? Darkness covered the surface of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God separated the darkness from the light, calling the light day and the darkness night, bringing order into chaos. And he does this for six consecutive days. Now, chaos is still the natural state of the world. Many of us are living testaments to this. <laughs> Does anyone know or love a drama queen in your life? Any drama queens in the house? You cannot exist without chaos. You don't know how to live in a normal setting. Like, you, you just get bored. You get antsy. You start creating chaos on your own. That's because we are made with the same stuff God used to make the universe. And our natural, most natural state is chaos. But God wants to do something unnatural in us. God's desire is and has always been to introduce order into our chaos, to bring meaning into our meaninglessness and light into our darkness. That is the message of the Old Testament prophets. And that is part of the reason why the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel can be so hard to read sometimes. I want to remind you who Ezekiel was. I mean, he was a, a 6th century B.C. prophet who lived in Babylon because the city of Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians. That's where he lived. But 30,000 Jews, Jews, Jewish leaders and their families were carted off to Babylon where they lived in captivity for, for decades. And that's where Ezekiel lived. 
He lived there for decades. In some ways, they assimilated, and Babylon became their home away from home, but they still lived as second-class citizens at best and captives at worst. And that's the setting in which Ezekiel is speaking. And I know that sometimes Ezekiel's words can seem harsh to our sensitive 21st century Western ears, but here's the thing about chaos. When you're living in it, the only way to get out of it is to recognize and own up to the fact that you're in it. And to, to realize that there were decisions that got you there in the first place. And to be honest about the kinds of things that, that led you into that season of chaos. And that is what Ezekiel's task is here. That's why as we go through this book, some, some of y'all are just, it's just shock. It's like, what is God saying to the people? It's because the only way to get out of chaos is to realize the depth of chaos you're in. And then God shows you the way out. So we're going to read through some parts of this, Ezekiel chapter 16. This uh, Ezekiel is one of the top three raciest books in the Bible. Chapter 16 is the raciest chapter in Ezekiel. And little did I know that our children would be on children's church Sabbath today. And so I'm going to be very careful about the rest of this sermon. Parents, I apologize. If you never come back again, no one would blame you. All right. This is Ezekiel 16 verses 1 through 8. The first part's not that bad. It gets a little worse later, but here we go. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt, which I, that's what they did to babies back then. I don't know why they rubbed their babies in salt, but they did, and you weren't, and then nor were you wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as, the, as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, and yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So I know it's a little twisted uh, here to figure out what exactly is going on, but this was the 6th century B.C. version of like a Cinderella story where no one sees the value or the worth of the lead character. No one else sees this person for anything other than trash. They are disposable, they are garbage at best, they are property. But then along comes the, the knight in shining armor, along comes the hero, and he sees her for who she really is. He sees her worth, he sees her value, and he wants to claim her and make her his and share a life together and provide for her and protect her and so that she's not vulnerable to anyone else's judgment or their attacks any longer. And so he loves her. And he, he uh, in, in the, the passage we just read, he spread the corner of his garment over her. This was uh, repeated at times in the Old Testament. This was a way of saying, I will protect you. You are mine. What you need to know about the Hebrew people in those days, and especially the days leading up to Ezekiel's day, is that in the rest of the eyes, in the eyes of the rest of the world, the Hebrew people were nobody. Nobody, nothing. 
They had no identity, no culture, ethnicity, nationality, solidarity. They weren't even one community. The Hebrew people were defined by that word Hebrew, which has its root in the ancient word hapiru. Hapiru is a word that civilized people used to use as a, as a slang term, a derogatory slang term to describe the wandering Bedouin, homeless, nomadic gypsies that used to wander around in the desert, subsisting by scavenging on whatever they could find. That was who the Hapiru were. And the different tribes of Hapiru had no relation to each other. All that they had in common was their homelessness. And the only reason they ever became one people as Hebrews was because of the famine around 1500 B.C. when the only food to be found was in Egypt. And so they all kind of converged on Egypt where they found food to survive the famine and some of them stayed. And they settled there. And they began to work in Egypt and provide for their families there. But they were very good at reproducing, very good at coloring and having babies. And they grew to such a population that they became a threat to the Egyptian way of life. And so the Pharaoh decided he was going to downgrade their class from second-class citizen to slave class. And they became the Hebrew slaves, the Hapiru slaves in Egypt. Which gave way to the Exodus story, of course, and was only that time as slaves and that exodus that led them into the wilderness, that was the only thing that held the Hapiru together as one group, as one, eventually one kingdom, the Hebrew kingdom. And so the rest of the world for centuries, and you can read back the anti-Semitism that we talk about today, it has been alive and well for millennia, for 2,000, 3,000 years actually, the anti-Semitism, it's, it's historically documented. The stuff that they used to say pre-Roman Empire, pre-Alexander the Great, all of that, people have always despised this group of people and looked down on them because they were nothing. And now they think they're somebody. Why do they think they're somebody? Because in God and their liberation, they found their identity. And it was God that set them free. And so this is what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel. You were nobody. You were trash. He says, I saw you kicking around in your blood. And that phrase, in your blood, is repeated a couple of times in that passage we just read. It has significance for Ezekiel's context. There are other writings, other literature from the Babylonian uh, region during that same time that referred to this understanding or this law they had about when a baby is found discarded in its blood. So this was not uncommon for young baby girls especially to be thrown out. As horrific as it sounds, it was common practice in those days for baby girls or babies that had certain deformities to be thrown out. But if you came across a baby that had been discarded and you found her in the blood of her birth, then you could by law claim her. Protect her, raise her, love her, care for her. And if you found her in her blood, then the birth parents had no legal right to counteract your claim. And so when God says through Ezekiel, I found you in your blood, he's saying, no one else wanted you, but I've always wanted you. And you're mine. And we've been together all these years and when you were nobody to anybody, you were somebody to me. 
when no one cared, you were special to me. And then this is what happened next. Ezekiel 16. Y'all, fasten your seatbelts. Ezekiel 16. <laughs> I'm shaking a little bit. <laughs> verse 15. I'm going to skip around just for safety's sake. It's 15 and then verse 25 and 32, 34. It's God saying, but you trusted in your beauty. Use your fame. He's saying, your beauty and your fame that I gave you to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. At every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you were the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You were the very opposite, for you give payment, and none is given to you. The word of God for the people of God. Yikes. <laughs> What's he saying? You're worse than a prostitute. At least a prostitute gets paid. But you, you pay people. He's saying, what he's saying really is you've been paying these other gods for their favor. You've been bending the knee to any old god or any old culture. You've been going with the flow. You've been conforming to the societies around you instead of saying true to the covenant that we've always shared and always enjoyed. From the time that I liberated you from your slavery in Egypt, gave you life and beauty and meaning. When no one else cared, I did, and you've given it all away. Can you feel God's pain here? Some of you cannot feel the pain because you've never been cheated on before. Only if you've been cheated on will you feel the pain with which God speaks through Ezekiel here. Because being cheated on brings about a certain kind of, of struggle, a certain kind of hurt. And I didn't even read the worst parts of this passage. Trust me. Y'all know I have a pretty low standard for what's appropriate in church. I'll say anything, but I won't say verse uh, 26. I'm not going to say that. Y'all can look that up yourself. And I see people looking for their phones right now. Look it up. Y'all are <laughs> pervs, man. But every spouse has this nightmare of finding out that your significant other, your spouse, your husband, your wife isn't stepping out on you, has been intimate with somebody else after all we've been through, after all I've given you. Can you imagine that, that kind of pain? It's one of the most common themes in our art, in our culture, in our music, the jilted lover working through his or her emotions or grief in a song. This week I asked people on Facebook to share with me your favorite cheating songs. And in about 76 seconds, I had about 100 <laughs> suggestions, which tells me I need to pray harder for y'all because it sounds like there's something going on in your lives. There was uh, Whose Bed Has Your Boots Been Under by uh, Shania Twain, which is apropos for uh, rodeo season. Uh, there was uh, Papa Love Mama by Garth Brooks, which I grew up with that song, uh, but I never really listened to it. It's kind of disturbing. Papa Love Mama... But mama loved men. Mama's in the graveyard. Papa's in the pen. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> Papa, what did you do? And then, of course, there's Jolene by Dolly Parton. Apparently, uh, some chick named Brittany something cheated on Justin Timberlake, and he wrote a song uh, called Cry Me a River. <laughs> Turned out okay for him. <laughs> Hashtag Jessica Biel. <laughs> and then there is the ultimate tribute to the woman scorned, brought to us by the immaculate Carrie Underwood. Here it is. Check it out. <laughs> All right. That's why you never cheat on a blonde girl. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Lorena Bobbitt's from Ecuador, where my wife is from. So, <laughs> FYI. All right. Cheating. Cheating cuts a person deep, deeper than maybe anything. Cheating will mess you up. Psychologically, emotionally, it will make it impossible sometimes for you to ever trust a person again. I remember one couple who came to me um, right back here in my little office back here, and they were in the worst crisis they'd ever been in. They'd been together about six years, married six years at that time. This was about a year and a half ago. And they came to me, and they both just looked uh, terrible. A few, year, a few days had passed since the news uh, had broken, but, uh, but they were still, it looked like, shell-shocked, you know. For the time that they had been married, she, the wife, had put her entire life on hold. And she had plenty of other options. Like she could have married anybody or she, she probably could have been anything. Brilliant, brilliant, attractive young, young woman. And, and yet she had given everything and put her life, her education, her aspirations, her dreams on hold to work two jobs to put this man that she married through medical school. And he looked like he was keeping it together. They looked like the ideal kind of couple. And, and he went through medical school. But when he got into residency, I don't know what happens to y'all when y'all get into residency. You medical people, residency does something. But, like, watch it. Because in residency, I don't know if it was the exhaustion, too many hours, or they grew apart or what it was. But he met somebody. He had an affair. And then it came to light, and it ruined her. Because obviously there's the pain of being betrayed, that's obvious, but there's also this deep sense of loss. Like the most important investment she ever made had gone belly up, and she was broke now. All that time, all those years, all that hard work, working her fingers to the bone to pay the bills and keep the lights on for this man who threw it all away. And I will never forget the image. I can't even describe it to you unless you've been there. You won't know what I'm about to tell you. There's something so raw about a moment where two people are bound by a covenant they made before God and their families and everybody. And one person has her head and her hands just saying on repeat, how could you, how could you do this to me? doesn't get more real than that. And that is what 
God is expressing. That is what he's saying to Ezekiel, uh, through Ezekiel to the people. After all we've been through, after all I've done for you, I could have chosen anyone. Nobody even wanted you, but I did. I loved you from day one. I protected you from day one. How could you? He's heartbroken and humiliated. But as is usually the case with God, with our God, the story doesn't end there. Here's the rest of this chapter, Ezekiel 16, verses 59 and 60, verses 62 through 60, 62 and 63. This, therefore, is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve, because you've despised my oath by breaking the covenant, yet... I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And you will know that I'm the Lord. Remember that phrase from last week? You will know I'm the Lord. And then when I make atonement for you, for all that you've done, you will remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth because of your humiliation declares the sovereign Lord. Now that last part sounds a little harsh. What he's saying is no more excuses, no more lies, no more talking, empty stuff. Just let's be real. Let's be together again. This, uh, thinking about this really brought to mind how good God has been to me. If I could just, if you'll indulge me for a minute. For the last three years, it has been like waking up to a new miracle every day. I'm from a very small town in East Texas. No one here has ever heard of it. I've always been a part of very small churches, frankly, if I'm honest. I've always been the guy who fell just short of everyone's expectations of me. I've always been that guy who was willing to settle for mediocrity. But these last three years, after my true conversion to Christianity and finally being convinced that the Bible is true and Jesus is the Son of God, something has changed. And I can't quite describe it to you. And if you don't know who I am, this may not mean anything to you. But in the last three years, the craziest things have happened, y'all. Like, I never would have imagined wrapping the... Players anthem with Bun B and Dr. Pace and uh, Cheetah the Weather Girl in the same car all at the same time. You know what I mean? Like I never saw that coming. And I've met politicians and former porn stars and famous uh, atheists and rodeo cowboys and billionaires and athletes. And I, I watched Jose Altuve hit three home runs off Chris Sale in a playoff game once. I went to two World Series games. This year, I sat courtside with Tillman Fertitta and a famous astronaut that spent a year in outer space at a Rockets game. More importantly, I watched this community in three years grow from about 30 people to over 1,000 who call this place home. And I baptized over 100 adults, baptized over 50 kids in three years' time. God has been good to me. And yet, as I look back over the last three years, I can think of no single moment more amazing than the moment that woman 
who worked her fingers to the bone to put her husband through medical school, only to have him break her heart into a million pieces and humiliate her in front of her family and friends, that woman find the strength to lift her head out of her hands, look that no good man she married in the eye who never could possibly deserve her or make right what he did wrong, and look him in the eye and say, I still love you. I still love you, and I want this to work. I still love you, and I'm still here. So let's start over. Y'all, is there anything more amazing? Is there anything more heroic than when a person who has every reason to walk away chooses to stay? To stay in love. To stay and fight. To stay and start again. Ezekiel says, that's how God is toward us. That you can never give God enough reasons to walk away. That no matter what you've done or what you do to push God away, he always lifts his head out of his hands and looks you in the eye and says, let's work it out. More than anything else, I want to love you. I want to love you more than I want to leave you. I want to love you more than I want to punish you. I want to love you more than I want to pay you back more than anything else. I want to love you. And so when was the last time you said the same thing back to God? You know, that's all he wants. He doesn't really care much about how religious you are. I don't think he really sees it as a litmus test, what member, what church you're a member of, or how much of the Bible you know. All that's great. But all he's ever wanted to hear from you was, God, more than anything else, I want you. I want to love you. I want your love more than my own success, more than my own acceptance, more than my own validation, more than my own reputation, more than my own upward mobility. God, more than anything else, just let me love you. Look, that's the gospel. That's why Jesus came, to bring this order into our chaos to introduce this order into our mayhem. That's why Jesus rose from the grave. He wasn't just showing off. He rose from the grave so that we would know the way out. He left breadcrumbs on the way out of the tomb so that when you're in your deepest, darkest, most chaotic moment, you'll know you're loved, you'll know there's a way, and you'll go. Even when all of life seems formless and void and dark, you will know there is a God who claimed you when you were nothing and has loved you every day since, even if you've denied him. And who longs only to hear from your lips today more than anything else. I want to love you. Whether you say it out loud or in your hearts, whether you believe it fully or just a little bit, Pray that you give God the only thing that he wants and craves from you right now. To know that you reciprocate the love he's always shown for you. Let's go to God in prayer together. Lord, we confess that sometimes we choose the chaos. We choose the complications.
because when life is chaotic, we have more excuses. We can shun accountability. God, we're tired of running and pretending and weaving tangled webs. We ask you, God, to bring order to this chaotic life, to help us open our eyes and hearts to the love you've always had for us, and to say simply this morning that more than anything else, I want you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.